Good morning. It is such a delight to be in the house of the Lord when we meet and we read like this. We resist giving the enemy a seat at our table. Our reading is from James 2, 8 through 13. If you look in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1012. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mark Tanius, the preaching pastor here at Grace, and I want to welcome every one of you to our service today. So that, glad you could be here. Uh, as you heard read, we are in the book of James, the New Testament letter of James. This series is called Real Wisdom, Real Faith. Because the entire book of James, the entire letter is written to help us, to help us connect our faith to works or our faith and our obedience. He wants us to show the connection between the two. You see, James would say that a Christian is someone who doesn't just believe certain things, but is someone who believes certain things that change how they live. A Christian is someone who is so transformed by the gospel that it doesn't just change our thinking, our mindsets, our beliefs, but it changes how we live. And James keeps pointing to, he's a pastor in Jerusalem in the early church, and he keeps, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he's lived with Jesus. He knows that Jesus changes lives. And he wants the early church to live out their faith in real ways, and they need real wisdom to do that. Last week, we looked at James 2, 1 to 7, and as we dealt with the topic, as James brought the topic of partiality, partiality, or, or in other translations say favoritism. Partiality, our working definition was partiality means to judge a person or group based on how they appear to you, how they appear to you, to judge a group or a person based on how they appear. James is very concerned about how Christians then and now, how Christians are treating people based on external factors such as physical appearance or um, economic status or social status or cultural background or even age. In fact, in verse 4, James comes down pretty hard. And he says, listen, when you do that, when you treat people based on external factors and appearances, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Pretty heavy. 
And so today we pick up the rest of this passage which deals with the same theme, partiality. And what James wants to do is he's going to offer us insight now into connection between partiality and love. He wants us to move from partiality, which is a lack of neighborly love, and move towards love, love of others. And so today's message is from partiality to love. Here's the thing, though, about partiality before we get into the text. To be fair, partiality is rooted in a kind of love. To show favoritism, to prefer one group of people over another or one person over another, to do that is actually rooted in a kind of love. It's called self-love, selfish love. When you favor someone over another based upon simply whether they have more money or they're, or they're your boss and you're trying to get in good with them or it's a coworker that you can, that'll help you get to the next level or a neighbor that you like, a neighbor you don't, if, when you show partiality, uh, when you show greater kindness, greater care, greater openness to certain groups of people or certain individuals, that's self-love. And you might rationalize, we might rationalize it and say, look, I, I just feel more at home with these people. Or they're my people, right? Sometimes we'll say that. Or we might think, well, um, we think that they can do certain things for us, right? So if I just hang out with this group or this person, they'll be able to benefit me. And how can that be wrong? I'm trying to do good things. Or we might say things like, I just feel safer with, with this person or those groups of people because we agree with each other. We don't have to get into a debate, an argument. They, we just agree with each other. Here's the thing. Those aren't all bad reasons. But do you see the, th the theme that when I say I like these groups, I like this person, what we're doing is I'm saying it's about me. How I feel, what I want, what I like, what benefits me is most important. And that's showing partiality. It's just really a form of me loving me. And we're really good at that, aren't we? Not just this way. We're really good at doing that. And James wants to teach us how to forsake partiality as we move towards love of others, love of neighbors. And then he's going to show us how God's love, God's mercy is really the ultimate key to unleashing that kind of love to others. So let's get into the text. Lesson number one. Faith in action looks like loving your neighbor. After coming down pretty hard on the evil of partiality, in verses 1 to 7, James now strikes a, a more positive tone here in verse 8. He's inviting us to live differently, to put our faith in action. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You're doing well. He says, if you live this way, if your faith leads you to live in a way where you love your neighbor as yourself, that's the way of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And you say, wait a minute, how come I'm connecting this to Jesus? Well, notice what he says. If you fulfill the royal law, that's an interesting term, royal law. The word royal means belonging to the king. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord. Notice, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. To call Jesus Lord is to acknowledge Him as King. Did you know that? 
You see, in the Roman Empire, only Caesar was called Lord. In fact, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Why? Because that means Caesar is to be followed and Caesar is to be obeyed. And yes, Caesar is even to be worshipped. Caesar is Lord. He is King. And then you see Jesus not just living this perfect life, but then he goes on a cross and dies. And then he rises from the dead. And, you, and then people witness it and they see him and they, and they touch his hands and they realize this is no ordinary carpenter. This is the king. This is the Messiah who was prophesied and has come and is risen and can take away sin and give us eternal life. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And so as Christians, we call Him King, Him Lord. We obey Him, we follow Him, we worship Him. And so then, what is the royal law? The royal law is simply what it looks like to follow King Jesus. The royal law is what it looks like to follow King Jesus. It's the foundational, ultimate ethic of living in the kingdom. And, and James boils it down for us. Here is the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is not just one of many ways to obey Jesus and follow him. This is the kingdom ethic, church. The kingdom ethic. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He, James is quoting from Leviticus 19.18. In other words, this has been God's ethic from the beginning. And then Jesus comes along, and you know, he quotes Leviticus 19.18 more, he quotes that verse more than any other Old Testament verse. He loves quoting this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then when Jesus asked, he was questioned, well, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? What is the greatest commandment in the law? How do you summarize, Jesus? Give us the executive summary of the law. And Jesus says, okay, I'll give it to you, and it's actually two. And you know what it is. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? That's the vertical aspect of the law. That's what we're called to do in relationship to God. And then he gives the horizontal aspect. But the second command, Jesus says, is just as important as the first. They go hand in hand. It is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love your God. Love your neighbor. This is God's will for those who follow Jesus. This is the central command of how we are to treat others. You say, well, give, us, give me more evidence. Well, what did Jesus say when he said to his disciples before he left them? He said, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples. And then you know what he said? If you can quote the New Testament. No, that's not what he said. No, there's nothing wrong with that. You should. Jesus knew the, knew, the, knew the Bible better than anyone. He says, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says, this is the ultimate apologetic that when the, you see the church is not just about us gathering and hearing from God, which is so important to our Christian life, but it's also about us living in community on a regular basis so that when the world looks at how we live with each other, how we treat each other, it will be an incredibly compelling witness that the gospel that we believe is a gospel that changes us and changes us collectively so that when others look in, they say, what in the world are they doing next to each other? 
other. Why are those two people friends? It's a compelling witness when we love one another. And then Jesus, in response to a question from a guy who said, well, well, love your neighbor, but, but who's my neighbor, Jesus? Right? I want to draw a circle so that I can limit who's my neighbor, and then maybe I can actually fulfill this command. So Jesus, help me draw some healthy boundaries around who's my neighbor. And then Jesus says, okay, well, let me tell you a story about the Good Samaritan. And the moral of the story is not, just, not that a priest or a Levite helped the guy in need, it's that a Samaritan, who the Jews would have hated and despised, that he is the one that is the good neighbor. He is the one that shows mercy and kindness. The moral of the story, what is Jesus saying? Who is my neighbor? He's saying your neighbor is any person with a need whom God has given you an opportunity to help. And so the strange twist from Jesus is that even your enemy is your neighbor. James says, if you live out this royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So we see love is the supreme Christian ethic. Love is the reason why partiality is so anti-Christian. Because partiality is rooted in selfishness, not love. Christian, do you want to see your faith put into action? Do you? Do you want to live it out? I hope the answer is yes. Do you want to follow Jesus in the way that says, I follow Jesus as king? Well, faith in action looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving people who don't look like you, who don't have the same income level as you, who don't agree with you politically or spiritually who don't have the same preferences, loving people in your home, you're like, oh, really? I got to start there? Yep. Yep. Most of us, you're, that's, you understand that some of you can't stand someone in your home and you're, you're literally betraying the very foundation of the Christian life and you think it's okay and it's not. It's loving people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and even online. Listen, this is not just a good idea among many. This is the heart of being a disciple of Jesus. By the way, love doesn't mean you condone sin or you affirm views that are opposed to the Bible. No. I'm not saying you sweep sin under the rug. I'm not saying you wink at sin. Oh, no big deal. No. But Jesus never winked at sin. He never said sin isn't a big deal. But who's he hanging out with? Sinners. Really bad sinners. It means we treat people with respect and kindness. Faith in action looks like loving your neighbor. Lesson number two that James gives us is that partiality is so serious because it is a failure to love others. Verses 9 to 11. But if you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do, not, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James make it, makes it explicit here. 
Showing partiality is a sin. Showing favoritism to a group of people over another or one person over another person based on anything external is it's wrong. It's a violation of God's moral law. Well, why would, he, why would James even need to say this, right? Isn't this a given? No. The only explanation for why James is taking the sin of partiality so seriously is because the Christian community back then was not. Listen, when James, step back a minute. When James was writing this, it was culturally acceptable to show partiality. That was the norm. Do you understand that? You understand that, that back then, people were put into categories based on your level of wealth, uh, your status, right? If you were poor, you were, in, you were in that category. If you're a merchant, if you have a certain level of wealth, you were in a certain category. If you're in the Roman Senate, you're in another category. It's just the way it was. It was a given that those who were poor would be undeserving of the same kind of respect and, and care as those who are wealthy. They just, that was normal for them. It was the way they lived. And, and everyone in this, at this time would be like, duh, he's poor. I'm not going to treat him the same as this guy over here. And then James comes along and says, no, there is no duh here, okay? He's saying, I know it's the norm for the world that you're living in, church, but partiality is completely opposed to the gospel. And it's not just back then. It's still a big problem today, isn't it? Think of all the ways that we, as people, use our influence, our money, our status, our position to get what we want. Think of all the ways on the flip side that we marginalize or even demonize people because of their social status or their ethnicity or their political views. Let's face it, partiality is really easy to justify, right? Of course I'm not going to be friends with that, that lady. Do you know what she believes about such and such? I'm not befriending her. She's a horrible person. Of course I'm not going to ever talk to this other person over here. Do you realize what she's like, what he's like? It's easy to justify. This person can do nothing for me. Why, why would I ever put them in my sphere of, of care? Or, we say, or what we do is we, we think we can get away with minimizing our sin of partiality. right? Most of us are like, I'd never say that, Mark. I don't, you're not quoting me. Okay. But he anticipates what we would think, like, okay, well, maybe I'm not loving all of my neighbors well. Maybe I do show some partiality, James, but at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not an adulterer. I mean, come on, I could be committing much worse sin here, James. And James responds to that. He said, for who said, do, whoever said, do not commit adultery and do not commit murder, if you commit one but not the other, you're still a transgressor. And then he has this bombshell in verse 10, which is really um, this massive theological idea that we don't have all the time to, to delve into, but we need, to, we need to at least understand it to some degree. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. This is huge. To keep God's law selectively 
is actually to break it completely. James is wanting us to understand how God looks at his word, at his law. His law is taken as a whole. It's, a, it's integrated. It's woven together. It's not different pieces and you can take one away and it's okay. No, it's like a garment. I almost brought up a shirt. And if, you, if, I, if I said, look, I have a, a shirt. And if I rip a part of the shirt and say, the shirt is fine. It just has a hole in that one section. It's okay. You would say, no, the shirt is ripped. Not that section. Once it's ripped, the whole garment is ruined. Or like the game Jenga. My kids like to play it's the game Jenga. It's where you got these wooden blocks and they're stacked like this, like this, like this. I almost brought it in, but I would have made a mess and Russell would have mad at me, so I didn't, I didn't do that. You can thank me later, Russell. Got the game Jenga, and you know, you can take certain blocks off, and you want the, you want the tower to stay up, and you gotta be careful, and you put a block on top, and you get ones that are wiggly, and we think sin of, in that way. We think, okay, well, if I do these little sins, it doesn't really block the, knock the whole thing down. I'm okay. Okay. Not murder, but, you know, a little lie here and there, a little partiality here and there. Whew, stayed up. I'm good. No. No. Every sin is like taking that bottom block. You pull it off and it's gone. That's what James is saying here. It all crumbles. You can dutifully obey certain commands. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. But if you show partiality, James is saying you have broken all of God's law. Or you might say, I, I obey the command to, to not show partiality partially, right? To some degree. I love those who look like me. I love those who think like me. But quietly, I despise those who don't. And James is saying, no, you're not loving your neighbor. Again, you're loving those who are easy to love. You're loving yourself. Please hear me. Please hear James. Please hear God. Partial obedience is no, diso- is no obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If you love certain people but neglect those who are not like you, you have broken God's law. I'm not saying, what the Bible is not saying is that you're the worst sinner in the world, but it is saying you have torn the seamless garment of the law and that makes you guilty of breaking it all. Don't think, I haven't murdered anyone, I'm okay. God's law condemns partiality. It might not seem like a big deal that you would say, I admit I'm str- I struggle with favoritism. I mean, come on, not everyone does to some degree, right? And James says, no, you don't get a pass. You don't. Because God doesn't give you a pass. He doesn't give you a break. So before we move into the next point, I want you to sit here for just a moment. I want you to ask yourself, what is your attitude towards the poor? Towards the rich? Some of you are partial against the rich. Ah, those rich people. What is your attitude towards those who are uneducated? Or those of other ethnicities? How do you treat them? Remember, James is all about faith and action. He wants us to live out a real faith. And partiality is serious because it's a failure to love your neighbor. Well, then where do we go here? What do we do, James? What do we do, Pastor James? Here's what he's going to show us. Love and mercy flow from gospel-transformed lives. 
Verse 12 again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Let that sink in for a moment. In verse 4, James accused us of becoming judges with evil thoughts. Partiality is a way of taking the role that belongs to God as judge. And James here says, think, speak, and act as those who will be judged. Every one of us will stand before God as judge. For those who have rejected God's offer of forgiveness and salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, you will be judged by the law and found guilty as a lawbreaker. You will see that Jenga and that you have taken off the bottom and it will all have crumbled down. You'll show the garment and there will be holes. Whatever the sin is for you, lust, greed, jealousy, pride, adultery, theft, dishonoring your parents, materialism, partiality, you name it, however you have broken God's law, there will be justice. And according to God's justice, we ought to be condemned for an eternity as our punishment. For whoever keeps the whole up but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And while that is sobering, James is moving us, moving us beyond just this is what the law does, but he says there is something more to this. There's, a, there's good news in the midst of this. Notice he says that we are judged under the law of liberty. You see, those who feel the weight of their sin and realize the Jenga tower has already fallen, and those who realize I, I, my sin can't save me, my, my good works can't save me, and they turn from their sin, and they trust in Jesus as Savior, we are now judged under a law of liberty. Which sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? A law by nature constrains liberty, liberty is freedom. So what's, what's the point here? He's saying, listen, remember this. Jesus came to fulfill the law and obey it perfectly, did he not? And yet when Jesus went to the cross, what was he condemned as? A lawbreaker, just like you and I. In fact, he was condemned as you and I. He took our punishment. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our death. He died in our place. And then he rose victoriously to prove not only his victory over sin and his victory over death, but his victory over the condemnation of the law. And now as Christians, if we are in Christ, if you and I are in Christ, we are under a law of liberty. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ set us free. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what is the law of liberty, James? What, what does it mean? I think it means the law of love. We are under the law of liberty. We are now free to love others deeply and sacrificially. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. We now have the transforming grace of God, which compels us to live and to speak and to think and to feel in Christ-exalting ways. That's what freedom is. We don't just live under a law that crushes. We live under a law that liberates, a life-giving law that says, I can obey. I want to obey. I'm free to obey. That's what it means to live under grace. 
Grace doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want. Grace means we're free to live and to love with, without, with, without strings attached. I am free to love you regardless of what you can do for me or not. I am free to care for you regardless of whether you can pay me back or not. And when you understand that in Christ you have everything you need, you are free to care for the poor. You're free to befriend someone who disagrees with you politically or whatever. You're free to invite someone over to your house who doesn't look like you culturally or even believe like you. You are free to bless those who speak ill of you. To those who criticize you, reject you, you can still bless and not curse. That's what it means to live under the law of liberty. Christ took the condemnation so we can be free. Free to love. Listen to his final warning in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is a warning. If you cannot show mercy or love, kindness to those who are different, especially those who can't help you back in any way, then you and I must ask the honest question whether you've truly experienced God's redeeming mercy in Jesus. You see, love and mercy flow from a gospel-transformed life. Perhaps James has in mind the words of his brother Jesus when he gave the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You remember the story where Jesus is trying to explain that those who have received mercy will give mercy if they really understand the mercy they've been shown. And he talks about this parable where a servant owes his master a ridiculous sum of money. In our terms, it would be something like $20 million. The debt is impossible for him to repay. And so the servant goes to his master and pleads for mercy. And astonishingly in the story, Jesus says the master forgives his entire debt. Wiped clean. 20 mil. Done. And you think, and he's walking out like, I'm free. Woohoo. And then you know what this crazy servant does? Then he goes and finds a guy on the street who owes him $2,000, has him beaten up, drags him to jail, and says, you won't come out until you pay me every penny of what you owe me. Jesus says, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Do you know how much mercy you have been shown by God in Christ Jesus? Do you have a sense of the crushing debt of sin that has been wiped away by Christ? When you do, Jesus says, you will show mercy to others. It will flow through you. And then James ends with this triumphant hope. He says, you see, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is true of God himself, and it should be true for us as Christians. For God, mercy does triumph over judgment. Yes, God is a righteous judge and one day all will be exposed. But this is what Ephesians 2 says after talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sin. It says, but God being what? Rich in what? Mercy. The New Testament doesn't say anything else about God being rich in except mercy. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
Listen, his mercy is more. God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. The word triumph here means to exalt in or delight in. God, listen to me. If you were, if you were asleep for the last however 30 minutes, now's the time to wake up. All right? God delights to show the richness of his mercy to undeserving people like you and I. He delights to do it. He has to judge, it's his nature, but he delights to show mercy. In his justice, God is exacting. He is precise. No more, no less, you will get justice. But in his mercy, he's overflowing. He's unrestrained. He's lavish. Do you hear me? Do you understand this? Please, listen. Do you know God in this way? Some of you might respond like this. Mark, you don't know what I've endured. I've been mistreated. I've been taken advantage of. I've been wounded. I've been misunderstood. I've been abused. If my life is evidence of God's mercy, then it seems pretty weak evidence. To you, I would say, the evidence of God's mercy is not your life, but his. He was mistreated. He was rejected. He was shamed. He was counted guilty to the greatest degree and in your place. If God would send his son to walk the dark road for you, the darkest of roads, I believe you can trust him to sustain you on your dark journey on the way to heaven and glory beyond imagination. For those of you who might say, Mark, it's not what others have done to me, it's what I've done. I've blown it so bad. Maybe it was one big decision, maybe it was a thousand little decisions. You think God's mercy has run out on you. You've already tapped his bank account dry. You know what God does for those who have wasted his mercy? He pours out more mercy. He is rich in mercy. We sang, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. God's bank account never runs dry. As soon as you think you've, you've, you've exhausted it, you've actually just come to the point where you can now experience the richness of his mercy. This is the good news of the gospel. Have you experienced God who is rich in mercy? You see, mercy triumphs over judgment for God, but it also be, should be true for us. And that's really what he's driving here. When it comes to how we treat one another, love and mercy should be what flows from us, not at the expense of truth. How do you know that you're a Christian? The answer is clear. You've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Christ alone by grace. That is how you know you're a Christian. But the New Testament will say often, you judge a tree by its fruit. In other words, is there mercy inside you toward other people? Can you show mercy to those who have messed up? To those who have offended you or annoy you? Sadly, we have become a culture devoid of mercy. We were talking about this in staff meeting. There is no mercy in our culture. There's no mercy on social media. Right? It's all judgment, isn't it? You show support for a cause, you're judged. 
You don't say anything about a tragedy, you're judged. What that means is, in a culture that's increasingly merciful, merciless, what that means is, you and I, we have an opportunity to stand out. Our mercy towards others will be a compelling witness to the power of the gospel because every person, while we live in a judgmental culture, every person longs for mercy. We want to be showed grace. And you see, loving, showing love and mercy to people who can't do anything in return for you is inherently Christian because it's exactly what God has done for you. Individually and collectively, let's move from partiality to love, love for the poor, love for the marginalized, love for the, whoever is different. You fill in the blank who the other is. And let's show the world this glorious truth demonstrated to us by God the Father that mercy triumphs over just judgment. Let's pray. Father, We admit we desperately need mercy. And we confess our view of your mercy is always too low. Our view of your mercy is always going to fall short. But Lord, I ask this morning on behalf of all of those who are listening and watching that you would expand our vision of your mercy, of your love, so that we might turn around and show mercy and love to those who have far less debt against us than we had against you. Lord, this is really hard. And it's so easy for us to self-justify or minimize and say, Lord, we're not doing the bad things, the worst things. God, give us a vision of your holiness of our call to live in holiness, to live in a manner worthy of the calling. God, my my desperate plea is that we would be a church that stands upon your truth unashamedly and yet shows mercy lavishly. Lord, I know that this community, this world is desperate for both truth and mercy. To know that there is the reality of truth that is objective and not subjective and to be shown mercy in light of it. God, I thank you that we can be a church for this moment in this time as hard as it is. Jesus, keep transforming us. Keep changing us from the inside out that we might live with real wisdom and real faith that we would show mercy triumphs over judgment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.